Welcome to A Certain Age, a show for women who are unafraid to age out loud. Since the beginning of time, women have been the keepers of stories, traditions, and wisdom. And for too long, the powerful conversations women have with each other have been overlooked because society often devalues women, age, and knowledge. My guest today is New York Times bestselling writer Grace Bonney. In fact, Grace wrote those words I've just read to you. They open her latest book, Collective Wisdom, Lessons, Inspiration, and Advice from Women Over 50. Grace interviewed more than 100 fascinating trailblazing women, Olympic athletes, a member of NASA, authors, activists, filmmakers, artists, community volunteers, food entrepreneurs, small business owners, mothers, sisters, daughters, friends. She joins me today to share a slice of their collective wisdom as well as some of her own story. Welcome, Grace. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited. Your book is stunning. I have been thumbing through it. What was your inspiration for Collective Wisdom and why did you put this together? Thank you. So my work always kind of stems from my interest and just general curiosity and how people view the world. But this book kind of came from two places. First, it came from a friendship that I had with a woman in her 90s who was named Georgine. And I met Georgine volunteering uh, along with my wife at a local sort of nonprofit here that's very similar to Meals on Wheels. And we cooked together in a kitchen for years. And that friendship really changed the way I see the world and made me realize how valuable it is for all of us to have friendships that span generations. And so that friendship with Georgine was a big part of this. And also feedback I got from the last book I wrote called In the Company of Women. And I got a lot of feedback from women who wanted to see the stories of women who had a lot more life experience. And it made me kind of realize how much my own work had focused on people who were within, you know, maybe 10 years of my own age, which was in my 30s at the time. So I really wanted to sit down and document the stories of women who had much longer life experience and really commit those to paper because I think so often the stories of women who are older are passed down um, orally and just told. And that, that kind of wisdom and feedback is something that exists just between women kind of shared one-on-one. And I wanted to make sure that, that that existed in writing somewhere. So that's kind of where this book came from. What, what's the age span of the women that, that are in Collective Wisdom? So most of the profiles are women over 50, so between the ages of 50 and 106. And then the stories that are about intergenerational friendships, those are kind of all over the place. But the the women in those intergenerational friendships, the older women are over the age of 40, and the younger women start from anywhere in their 20s to women in their 60s who have friendships with women who are, you know, in their 80s and 90s and older. Love it. Love it. You have really an eclectic mix of uh, profiles in the book because you have people from all across the country, which I notice. You've got well-known um, figures like writer Roxane Gay. You've got delib- uh, disability activists. I saw a cookie baker, which I loved. You also featured, <laughs> <laughs> you also featured a woman that I know and admire, a uh, broadcast television pioneer and philanthropist, Ruth Ann Harnish. How did you source your profiles? And was it hard to whittle it down to just over 100 women? You know, that process is my favorite part of the book. It's always thinking about ensuring that there is a really diverse mix of people from different communities and as well as like a mix of stories, because I think often, you know, there can be similar paths in life. And that's a fun thing to be able to point out and kind of highlight these universal threads that exist in our stories. But I want to make sure that there are a really broad mix of I don't know, I guess paths in there. And so that's that's kind of the two approaches I have is, you know, 
Am I making sure to include as many women from different communities as possible? Am I ensuring that there is like geographic diversity in the book, which was kind of a mistake I made with my first book. And this book, I really wanted to sit down and make sure that there were stories of women from rural communities, as well as um, indigenous reservations and communities all across the country. So I kind of sat down and made a giant list of, I think, probably 175 people. And then I spent a few weeks whittling that down. And then I got feedback from people in those communities to kind of say, you know, I think this is a person whose story would really be great to share. And then I think the actual interview process took maybe two or three months. So it's kind of always a constant edit and process of getting feedback from, oh, you know, you may not know this person, but this person has a story that's really important to share. And then the thing that was different about this book that was really interesting is when you're talking to women who are over 40, you know, this is a community that tends not to be as online as the communities that I'm used to working with. So For example, when I worked on In the Company of Women, I think I spent two weeks confirming names and then we just jumped right into interviews. And this book was the opposite. I think I spent 80% of my time trying to get to those women and then to spend time getting to know them so that they felt comfortable trusting me and sharing their story with me. And then I think the actual interviews were all done quite quickly, but it took a lot more time to confirm that because this was a community of people who were definitely more offline than I'm used to working with. And that was a really interesting and important learning curve for me. Yeah, I'm sure, especially if you're talking to somebody who's 106. You know, this is somebody who, who's probably not um, necessarily on Instagram, although maybe I'm making an ageist uh, you know, judgment by, by assuming that, 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 that they're not. You know, it's my own parents who are in their um, mid to late 70s are both like super active on technology. So I guess... Uh, you never know. But one of the things I did notice when I looked at your book is that you ask most of your subjects the same set of questions, although some of them vary based on their expertise or perhaps, you know, the, a particular, um, you know, aspect of their life that you wanted to surface. But since, and I love the fact that you asked these women, you know, largely the same questions because the answers were so resoundingly different. Did you see any broad themes emerge? Mm, you know, it's so interesting. I went in expecting there to be really broad themes because in most of my work where I focused on women and entrepreneurial fields, there was a lot of commonality. But when you start to stretch out and look at lifespans that include, you know, someone who maybe has been alive for over 100 years, paths get really, really diverse really quickly. So I think the only commonality I saw was that the longer that you live, the more complex life really gets. And so even if somebody on paper sounded like they had a really similar life experience, maybe someone coming from the same community and getting married around the same age, having children around the same age, their experiences were completely different, um, primarily because of time. I think the longer that you are alive, the more opportunities there are to take different paths and make different choices. So I ended up kind of being quite reassured by the fact that there's no one way to do something. There's no 50 ways to do something. There are hundreds of ways and opportunities in life where we can take different paths down, I don't know, completely different roads. So there wasn't really a universality in the way that I expected, but I ended up feeling quite assured in that sense of we all get to do things really differently and we can all get to the same place. And maybe that's a sense of 
greater self-confidence or a better knowing of ourselves over time, but there's really no right way to do that. And I kind of loved learning that in the process of making this book. Yeah, absolutely. There is no one right way to do things. I, I was so struck by some of the stories. I'm, I'm forgetting the woman's name, but she was born in uh, outside of Normandy uh, right after World uh, World War II, and she is now living in upstate New York. And it, it was just so interesting to see these snapshots of women's lives and the the journey that 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 took them there and i was really inspired by a lot of their their takes on aging and their their sense of confidence which is something that you just touched upon so grace uh can i ask you how old you are sure i just turned 40 this year okay congrats uh so you're, <laughs> Thank so, you. so you're younger than um you know most of the women that you're profiling or many of the women that you profile because mm-hmm. you do have some younger people and, and you're you're younger than than my um my audience this show basically targets women in midlife so and when i say midlife we're, we're talking about maybe 50 plus although you know mm-hmm. not all of us are going to get to 106 so exactly um did this project change the way you feel about aging? Did you enter with one set of expectations about what it means to be um, over 50 and leave with another? This book definitely changed the way I look at aging and maybe not in the way that I anticipated. I think because I live with type 1 diabetes, which does affect your overall lifespan in some way. And so I think that this book made me look at my own mortality and I don't know. I think it made me look at disability and the way that um, I think ableism kind of intertwines always with ageism. And I came away from this realizing that I think the way we think of midlife is really shaped by a lot of identity factors. And I think for some people, midlife is a little bit earlier than other people. And so I wanted to kind of think about the way that ageism just affects all of us differently. And so it I definitely came away from this feeling like I am in some ways much younger than I think of myself and in a lot of ways much older than I think of myself. And I just tried to stay curious and non-judgmental about that throughout the process. And I'm I'm really glad that I did because I think that no matter how old you are, I think ageism plays a factor in your life, including the younger women in this book. And I tried to make not make, but encourage them to really look at the way that ageism impacts younger people as well, to get them to be curious about the concept of ageism, because I don't think you really think about it until you're on the older end of the spectrum. But younger people experience that as well. And I hoped that by encouraging them to look at that, they would be in, you know, in curious and inquisitive about the way that their own internalized ageism had affected who they seek out as friends, who they trust for, you know, important conversations and mentorships and I really hope that this book will just make people look at ageism as a concept that would be one that would be good to be broken apart a bit more. Sure. Because I, I, love that. I think a lot of those barriers we we create around age in both directions are just completely arbitrary and shaped by dominant cultures. And they really don't benefit any of us unless you are an older cisgendered white straight man. I don't think that the concept of ageism is helping any of us. So I would encourage all of us to get a little curious about breaking it down a bit. I think there's really a movement towards doing that because I think of, yeah. you know you touch on intergenerational friendships in your uh, book. I um uh you know had a, a guest on uh, by the name of Marcy Alboer in season 1. She works for encore.org which helps people with sort of second act careers. They're doing a lot of work around intergenerational friendships and and mentoring, sort of reverse mentoring um that goes both ways. I think of an organization called Circle run by a woman named Charlotte Jap 
which is the same thing. It, it connects um, somebody who's chronologically older with somebody who's chronologically younger and has them do sort of a reverse, you know, mentoring and reverse mentoring back and forth. But I love the word that you use also about, uh, which is curious, because I, I do feel that um, – when we look at ageism, too, there's a sense that when you're getting older, maybe that you're not, um, I don't know, as uh, you, you can't learn new things or you're not open to new experiences or you're set in your ways. And that's a lot of the stuff that culture teaches us. But, I, you know, I know mm-hmm. people who are chronologically younger that are very fixed, you know, yes. and I know a lot <laughs> of people who are, phys- you know, chronologically older that have very curious growth mindsets. And I think that um, one of the keys to remaining um youthful in spirit and, and, and your your experiences is to be curious. How, how, how do you manifest curiosity in your own life, aside from talking to 100 women you don't know? <laughs> <laughs> um, I really think you hit the nail on the head here. I think that that, that curiosity um, is kind of the key aspect here. And I think so many of the women that I spoke with who are in their 80s and 90s who are living not just, you know, second, third, fourth careers, but are very much kind of living 10th, 11th, 12th versions of themselves and who are really transparent about looking at all the different ways that kind of shed different skins throughout their lives, um, cited curiosity as the thing that really kept them engaged in their own lives. And I don't think that curiosity has to be only something that we apply to like what's new and cool and happening in life, but just really being curiosity or being curious, curious about ourselves and how we're feeling about the world around us. And so I really try to do that by just making sure I have some connection to nature every day. And that can be through our pets. That can be just like sitting outside, but it usually has absolutely nothing to do with technology and everything to do with just trying to be more present in how the world around me is changing. And that kind of keeps me grounded in myself. Then I get curious or curious about how I feel. I don't know about everything around me. And I noticed that. And every single woman that I talked to, that the older they got, the more they wanted to spend time outside in whatever way felt right for them, because that kept them plugged into, I don't know, a way of measuring and experiencing time that is just a lot more slowed down and a lot more present. And I think that's something that all of us would benefit from, because I think I think as we're all aware, like today's kind of obsession around technology, it speeds up time and it makes it this really like Oh my gosh! Yes, the, the scrolling I don't think that benefits anyone. Yeah, it, <laughs> the it Instagram nobody. rabbit hole, the endless scrolling, uh, mm-hmm. the the notion of unplugging from our technology to plug back into themselves is is uh, so key. We need to be better about practicing that. At least I do. Mm-hmm. In a minute, we're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, I want to hear if there was a particular story that moved or inspired you the most in your collection of interviews. Hey beauties, can you believe we're already heading into the holidays? This season brings me so much joy, but can also bring heightened amounts of stress. Keep your holiday season merry and bright by remaining invested in your self-care. And yes, that means our menopause rituals too. Now we can care for our skin, mind, and body with the help of our friends at Kindra. Kindra's line of estrogen-free menopause essentials can help us manage mood swings, hot flashes, and make sure we're getting the restful sleep we need to enjoy our holidays. I feel great about relying on Kindra since all of their products are backed with years of research. Their potent formulations include natural actives like ashwagandha, pycnogenol, and niacinamide to offer full-range symptom relief when used consistently. Kindra has a holiday offer for certain age listeners. 
Use code KD20 at checkout for 20% off your first order or subscription. Head to ourkinder.com to gift yourself self-care this holiday season. Grace, we're back from our break. I would love to hear if, you know, what one, two, three stories moved or inspired you the most as you had all of these amazing conversations. Yes, I have so many. Um, I think one. <laughs> I know it's like asking you to pick a favorite child. <laughs> I know it's hard, but but there there were there were several that stood out to me primarily because they weren't quite what I expected to hear, and they also resonated with me in a way that I hadn't felt in myself before. Um, and I think two of those were uh, Betty Reed Soskin, who is kind of America's beloved and oldest park ranger. And also uh, an incredible chef and activist named Mab, who was originally from Iran, um, who now lives in the United States and who has worked in feminist journalism and kind of connecting the worlds of feminism with Middle Eastern activists and women. And both of them discussed really transparently the way that they tried to stay present with all of the past versions of themselves and to not look at them as versions of themselves they needed to be embarrassed of or ashamed by or glad they were no longer in, but instead to constantly reference those earlier selves in their daily dialogue. And Mab in particular talked about really imagining every night as she sat down to dinner, like having dinner at a round table with all the older versions of herself and wondering what would they think of the decisions she's making now? What would they think of where she is now? And to do that as a form of kind of appreciation. And that really stuck with me because I think that the way our culture approaches growth is from this like, ah, it must be an improvement. We must shed this older, less productive version of ourselves. And instead she was like, no, 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 no. We need to hold on to those versions of ourselves because how else can we have appreciation for where we are now? What feels easy to us now that may have felt hard in an earlier stage of our life? And that, that really hit a chord with me because I think I'm in that place in life where I'm switching careers and doing something completely different. And I felt a lot of shame. I felt a lot of imposter syndrome. And both of those women really got me to slow down and have appreciation for all of the earlier versions of myself that, you know, they make me understand why I feel scared right now, but to really be proud of that I'm still doing the thing that makes me scared that maybe an earlier version of myself wouldn't have been able to sit there and push through that fear. And if I lose touch with that earlier version of myself, I won't have an appreciation of just the basic steps that I'm getting through right now. So Betty Reed Saskin and Mab, both of them really, I'm so grateful for the time with them because it, it made me quite appreciative for the earlier versions of myself that I maybe used to be a little embarrassed of. That and is now so I just fascinating and so really a, proud of such a generous way of treating yourself. You know, to, absolutely to to um, to recognize that uh, that you've had di- you know, sort of different iterations and lived different experiences, and that one is not better than one is not better than another, and that um, they all contribute to make you who you are. So this is actually a great segue into a question I wanted to ask you because I first learned about your writing because I followed you on. Uh, an earlier career chapter, which was Design Sponge. And many of our listeners might know that. It was a wildly popular interior design blog. You know, you were really one of the, you know, OG bloggers. And then you 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 shattered Design Sponge after 15 years. So I would love to ask you, you know, what made you make that sort of pivot out of Design Sponge? What is it that you're doing now beyond writing? You mentioned that you felt a little trepidatious about a a change that you were making, you know, what, what, what else is going on with you in your career? Yeah. So I think like, like anything, I I think that projects 
for better and worse these days, are very much attached to the personality of the person who starts them. And so when I started to design Sponge, I was 23, fresh out of college, working at a job I did not like. And Design Sponge was my respite from, from all of that. And I got to talk about the things in my life that I was most interested in, that I wasn't seeing in mainstream media. And I was able to build, like a with the help of many other people, of course, um, a community that I felt at home in. But it was a community that I felt at home in as a 23-year-old. And that's a very different community that I needed at that age than I needed now at 40. And so as I evolved, like all people do over time, I I became less interested in the things that meant a lot to me at 23. And I became a lot more interested and slightly more serious, more complicated, more intersectional issues. I just changed as a person. And so, you know, when I kind of looked at what I had built, which I was so proud of, I also recognized that at a certain point, I no longer felt as connected to it. And the industry was changing, you know, the way that blogs are financially structured has completely been upended, which is fine. Like this is the nature of technology. And I think it took me years to kind of adjust to the fact that I think what felt authentic to me would no longer really mesh with what I needed to do to keep that business afloat. And so over the course of about a year, I made that decision. I helped with my teammates to make sure that they had safe financial places to land at other websites and other magazines. And I just kind of pulled the cord at a time that felt like a good time to leave the party, like leave when it's still fun and you're still enjoying it. And I thought I would fall into something really easily right away and that there would be like offers to go do something different and, you know, well-paying and great. And none of that happened. And I'm really glad that it didn't because I floundered for at least two years. I spent a year like doing all the things I hadn't had time to and taking these trips and starting working on this book. Um, But I just kind of assumed something would fall in my lap. And it was a really important life lesson to realize that like, no, 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 life does not fall in your lap. It might seem that way. And I think that's what, what privilege looks like. But I think in general, you have to actively go out and pursue something that feels like what you want to do. And every part of me wanted to run back to the things that were familiar. Um, but I'm really glad that I hung in there and I ended up applying for graduate school. And I'm now in grad school studying to become a marriage and family therapist. And that very much came from my love of being curious about people and wanting to ask questions and to listen. And I'm really excited to be in this new chapter, which terrifies me and is very hard. And, you know, a lot of my skills from Design Sponge are able to transfer into this, which is great, but it is like getting to know a totally different version of myself. And I'm glad that I'm doing it, but it it took me a while to feel brave enough to do that. Congratulations. That's so, it's so exciting. And I think, um, you know, it sounds like being brave is pointed you in a direction that that is going to be such a great fit for you. When do you graduate, and what do, what do you hope to do with it? Do you want to have your own practice? Do you want to go work for somebody else? What's your What's your vision? You know, right now I'm totally open. The school is three years, so I should be done in 2023, and then you have to spend at least a year um, working towards licensure under somebody else. My initial thought was, oh yes, I'm very clearly going to open my own practice and do something here in the Hudson Valley where I live, and I don't know, the deeper that I get into it, I love the research part of it. I'm kind of a researcher by nature and I still have an interest in like seeing where mental health overlaps with creativity. And so I'm not sure where I'll end up. I could see myself like working with a company that wants an in-house therapist who understands how creative teams work. Um, So I'm not, I'm not quite sure. I like keeping things open. And for the first time in my life, I am actually enjoying the fact that I don't know what I will do because I have very much 
planned out everything for a long time. And now I'm not doing that. And I'm trying to learn to be uncomfortable with that unknowing. Cause I think that's kind of a, that's a useful skill to have in therapy, but in life in general. So it's one I'm, I'm working on and practicing. It's such an important skill. The, the willingness to be uncomfortable is what, you know, what, um, you know, opens us up to the possibility of, of joy on the other side of, a, of mm-hmm. a, an uncomfortable leap or opens us up to, to new possibilities, to new opportunities, to maybe new relationships, new people, all, you know, all the good stuff. Everything that's, that's good is on the other side of, of maybe making yourself vulnerable. And I, I feel like the pandemic has kind of uh, accelerated our busy, you know, ability to do that. Like we all had to kind of stare something unknown and very unknown in the face and um, move our way through that. So um, congratulations to you. I'm excited. I'm excited about your new chapter. Grace, Thank we're going to be wrapping up in a few minutes, but I did want to do two things with you before our time runs out. I want to okay. ask you a couple of the questions that you ask the women in the book because I love the ball. <laughs> Um, sure. And I would love to hear your answers. And then we then we close with a speed round. So I want to okay. start by surfacing a couple of the questions that I really love that you that you pose to your subjects. And the first one is, how has your sense of self-confidence or acceptance mm-hmm. evolved over time? I think the way mine has evolved is moving beyond the idea of self-acceptance to self-love. Uh, love. I think as a queer person, I spent years just trying to get to a place where I accepted myself and where other people accepted me. And then it really hit me, I think a few years ago that like acceptance isn't enough. I need it to be love. And so I've spent a lot of time in therapy, uh, really working on that. And I think now in my forties, I'm recognizing that Yes, acceptance is the bare minimum. That should be something you expect from the people that are a part of your lives, um, including yourself. And so now I'm really focusing on what does self-love look like and what does that look like without judgment and to not second guess that as, you know, being too navel gazy or something. I'm really trying to figure out how I cultivate self-love in my life right now. I love that. I love that. How has your idea of success changed over time? Hmm. It's gotten quite small, which is good. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, yeah, it's. I think that contemporary society, success is like never enough. It's bigger, wider audience. Everything needs to be larger. And when I closed Design Sponge, one of my closest friends said, "Like, whoa, what's it going to feel like when no one cares what what you say?" <laughs> and, and you're like, "Don't you a, care what I say?" <laughs> yeah, and that's you know. I was a re- I had a really like immediate like ugh I don't care response and then I had a longer slower response to that where I was like hmm am I going to care about that and I've I've realized that like, yes there there are obvious ways where you know stepping away from something that has a large platform affects your life but for the most part I have felt so much more fulfilled working in smaller circles and more intimate settings and so I think for me success has gotten a hell of a lot smaller and. I'm really grateful for that because I think I had been quite biased um, defining success as something that had to be related to like size in a way that it really does not need to be. It, it, it sounds a little bit like just sort of shifting from external validation to the internal validation. You're like mm. you, you get to choose what success looks like. You get to choose what Absolutely. makes you happy and you don't. And, you know, your Instagram follower or the people that are clicking, you know, on certain headlines, don't, don't, you know, don't factor into that. That's so, um, 
I think that's so valuable for me to hear, even from you, because as I launch this podcast, as I look to connect with women, um, I get so lit up when I get a DM or a message that says, I love this show because of, you know, X, Y, or Z, or somebody, you know, it, it connects with them, and it makes me feel amazing. And sometimes I'll look and be like, I wish I had more, you know, downloads. You know, when you mm-hmm. get caught up in the things that are big, uh, sweeping metrics versus like small, the impact that it means to a particular listener. Um, and I try to f- I focus on that. So I love this notion of, um, you know, choose to uh, prioritize small because those are the, you know, the bigger, more important things. Yeah, I guess. absolutely. So the last question, knowing what you know now, what would you go back and tell your younger self? Hmm. Um, it's funny. I mean, my answer is when I think of this, always go back to just being somebody who was closeted at a really young age. I would go back and tell myself to just be out. Um, I think I realized I was queer when I was like in middle school and had a, a really not great reaction from family and community. And so that was a really difficult thing to kind of stomach. And I think spending, you know, the better part of 30 years of, or I guess 20 years of your life, um, you get exhausted. It wears down a lot of muscles, including just like the muscles it takes to develop who you really are. And I think I'm kind of playing catch up in that sense. And I have a lot of kind of just healing to do around that. So I think I would go back and tell myself to come out. It's, it's well worth the kind of immediate pain of it not being very popular to be gay when you're young um, in exchange for just all of the years I could get back to enjoy my life and be myself a little bit earlier. That's so beautiful, Grace. And I I think we talked about it a a little bit earlier that sometimes, you know, joy is on the other side of an uncomfortable leap. And, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, to look back and to to say to yourself, you know, make that leap. uh, Happiness is, is on the other side of it. Thank you so much for sharing those answers to the questions that you asked all your subjects. I loved hearing it from the from the author and the curator herself. <laughs> okay, we're going to move on to our speed round before we end. So this is a quick, you know, one or two word answer that completes uh, the sentence or this thought. So writing collective wisdom has taught me that aging is a gift. My own aging process has given me this new superpower. Oh, that's a hard one. I don't know if I have any superpowers. Um, I would say just presence, presence, being present. The last new thing I learned or tried was? <laughs> TikTok filters. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to have to teach me. My, ne- <laughs> my next creative project is? Mm, myself. I think getting to know myself. My big audacious goal for the next decade is? to open a therapy practice that involves nature. All right, full full steam ahead with that one. On weekends, you will find me. Watching Below Deck. Finally, the book or podcast I rely on for creative inspiration is? Mm, right now, uh, Disability Invisibility by Alice Wong, which is a collection of stories of people from the disabled community. I think that all justice is rooted in uh, disability justice these days, so that's my go-to. Fantastic. And I know that she's one of the profiles in your book. I will put all of those resources into the show notes. Grace, thank you so much for joining me today uh, and talking about collective wisdom, lessons, inspiration, and advice for women over 50. Before we say goodbye, how can our listeners find you and keep following your work and writing and learn about other books or perhaps other creative projects? Absolutely. So I, my last little online home is at Instagram and it's at Design Sponge. And it sounds like a general feed, but it's just me. Thank you, Grace. 
This Wraps A Certain Age, a show for women who are aging without apology. And this wraps our November shows and our month-long focus on the magic of women coming together. Missed a show? We kicked off the month with nutrition pro and wellness blogger Rachel Hughes of the Menno Memos. Nina Lores Collins of The Wolfer and Revel came on to talk about reimagining midlife. Networking pro Susan McPherson walked us through the lost art of connecting and how to build meaningful relationships in your career and personal life. And nonprofit leader Trish Tierney gave us ideas for how to find purpose and volunteer in support of social justice organizations. Join me next Monday when we kick off a month of conversations on celebrating and joy. Special thanks to Michael Mancini, who composed and produced our theme music. See you next time. And until then, age boldly, beauties. Beauties.